AFIDS is proud to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as traditional custodians of the land on which we are having this conversation. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. AFIDS, listen. Hi, this is Anna. Hi, I'm Lara. And hi, I'm Mish. You're listening to Aphids Listens, an alternative archive where artists share a work that they've made and also a work that they love. So we've got a fresh new voice on Aphids Listens. Welcome, Anna. Uh, started with Aphids just a couple of weeks ago. Any highs, any lows? How's it going? So my first little project was to do a little revamp of the office got a nice cloud couch in the studio along with some fresh new plants that I bought, put in my car and uh, turns out you shouldn't do that on a 37 degree day because they will burn to a crisp. Take care on those those warm ones. Mish, what's wow. going on in where you are? It's warm in Adelaide on Ghana country. It's very warm. I was just thinking that, you know, people hear about Australia and they get worried about the snakes, the spiders, but really it's just the heat. Who, who did you speak to this week, Mish? Uh, I interviewed Frances Barrett for this episode, who is an amazing artist uh, from Sydney, who I've known for a long time, and you would have too, Lara. We were all in very similar circles in uh, the early 2000s, working um, at a lot of uh, underground venues. Although... I once saw um, Frances skull like two litres of milk. It was really disgusting in a performance work, very visceral. Yes, it's funny that you should mention that. I think that that really sticks in our minds. I also remember that work very clearly, and I spoke about that in the interview with Francis. Um, oh, just you It really, yeah, just sings. I think uh, they also danced after they drank the milk. Mm. So it was really a sight to behold. And a bit vomity. I can't quite remember. A little bit vomity. Yeah, I think there was some, definitely some retching. I don't know if things fully uh, resurfaced, but it was... Oh, I can't wait to relive that memory with Aphids Listens. Are you looking forward to it, Anna? Gorgeous. Cannot wait to listen, Mish. Let's get, well, let's get started. Let's go. Hello, Francis. Mish Gregor. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm here in your beautiful new Adelaide home. It's very exciting to visit you here. Um, we always start Aphids Listens with a little moment of when we first contacted that artist's work and I was trying to think about when I first saw your work and I don't know if it's the first time but because it was a sort of a, a hazy blur of my early 20s because I have known you and your practice for a very long time but I do remember a pretty uh, special performance that you did with your collaborative Barbara Cleveland uh, to the song Milkshake uh, which I think I saw about 700 times uh, once it because it just really went viral in the way that short performances could in the early 2000s um, which involved you all in skeleton suits on stage and I remember seeing it at Land Franchise which is an artist run space in Sydney where we all did a lot of early uh, rough performances and you were all up on stage with two litres of milk and you drank or attempted to drink two litres of milk each through the song and then sort of crumped, I think would be the word we would have used at the time, did this 
horrific crumping while processing that milk all in a very short space of the song and it was very physically affecting and the image of you in skeleton suits is all sort of like strangely arresting because we were thinking about your organs and you know your skin and the smell and being reduced to these like black skeletons was very unnerving yeah so it's just just been thinking about that and about how that collaboration is still ongoing and how you have always had your own practice outside of that. So we're really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be in conversation. And, yeah, I think that rough performance has been the operative word, but I hope I maintain that sort of sense of roughness through my practice still. Yeah, I think that sense of... Grittiness is very uh, true to your work and also the visceral nature of asking an audience to witness something which is uncomfortable and seeing your body in, an, in that discomfort or something is still there. But before we get into your work too much, um, we usually start with asking our artists to describe a work that they have experienced Um, And really to think about if you're going to walk me there and where you are and what it feels like and, yeah, how I would experience it. Yeah, when you asked me this, I immediately thought of Megan Cope's work, which she presented at both the Adelaide Biennial um, two years ago and then at University of New South Wales Galleries. Uh, It was part of an exhibition. I saw it in Sydney and... um, so Megan Cope is a Kondamukka woman um, who's been whose practice is just really extensive across like sculpture, performance, um, beautiful installations, and yeah, this exhibition called um, Fractures and Frequencies presented this one work uh, amongst others, but this particular work I wanted to talk about, which was called Untitled Death Song, and so you walk into the gallery and sort of centrally located in this sort of long rectangular gallery um, are all of these built instruments and some of them are sort of, yeah, quite... And they're they're quite tall and long and they're constructed constructed from um, old mining sort of detritus and um, industrial equipment. So Megan has sort of built these instruments from these kind of, I guess, um, the refuse of mining. Um, And you walk in and they're all sort of presented on these grey sort of um, stones. And so these instruments kind of erect themselves from these um, grey stones. And they're rusted... Um, you can see the metal where it's kind of worn out or been scratched. You can see sort of marks painted on them. Um, you can see where they're taut or where they're kind of delicately balanced. Uh, you can see the implements that would have drilled down into the ground then others which are like barrels of, I don't know, probably petrol or oil. So they're all sort of these, you know, strange constructions. And... I saw both the live performance as well as the in-store, which just had the the soundscape going. And Megan, yeah, developed this kind of... I think she worked with um, Isha Ramdas, who's, a, uh, I think, a, a musician, and as well with Joel Stern from Liquid Architecture to develop 
uh, sort of these instruments as well as develop kind of compositions or scores for musicians to play these instruments. And as a starting point, Megan um, thought about the the sound of the curlew. And uh, in Kwandamoka culture, the, the curlew is a harbinger of death. And the curlew has a really distinct sound, which is this kind of cry or shriek, and it's quite haunting. And so... Um, that was the starting point for these compositions. And so you can hear these in the gallery or when it was played live or as the sound installation, you can hear this haunting kind of metallic, screeching, bird-like sounds. And they're not distinctly animal or distinctly machinic. They're this beautiful blurring between. And I think Megan was sort of asking, like, what, you know, with mining, there is country and trauma. What would the country sound like? What are the sounds that country is making? Um, and I guess this idea of the curler being the harbinger of death, there's this kind of foreboding, um, yeah, foreboding sound that encompasses you. And so, yeah, for me, I found it was like emotionally arresting, um, I would take some of my students from New South Wales down into the space and we would lie on the ground and just listen to the soundscape. Um, yeah, and it was just, I found it um, probably, it, it, it was the most moving work I'd seen all year, I think. Mm. Yeah. That sounds, yeah, I saw that work as well. <laughs> I saw it in the, um, the idea of laying down with students sounds like such a beautiful way to experience it. It's one of the things that I used to do when I worked at the MCA with children um, was to say, what is the best way to experience an artwork? Yeah. And like that thing of making a choice of where you put your body and how long you spend with an artwork is such a strange thing. There's, um, I think, I don't know why I know this, but in Shakespeare, he always <laughs> refers to... Um, there's this root called a mandrake, which is, I think, poisonous, and it shrieks when you pull it out of the earth, and it's like this kind of poetic image, like it shrieks like a mandrake. And, um, yeah, I really thought about that sh that thing of, like, the earth shrieking when it's being pulled at or, like, the sort of, yeah, how do we vocal, like, yeah, make human or make... Uh, listen to in ways that are maybe more literal but also at the same time incredibly poetic this idea of of land and what's happening to land in this country and I think yeah what's happening to land but also the scale of things like the the um, bird being so the curlew being such a small haunting figure but then also the scale of the mining you know, the scale of mining within Australia. Like, I thought Megan's work really and really encompassed sort of the scale of demolition, the, the impacts, how it all impacts us. I don't know. I, I just found it um, really moving. Yeah. Have you ever been to a super pit, one of those super pits? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> oh, yeah, a very, yeah. It is quite the experience of scale... Because it's like, you know, if you think about, I don't know if you've ever imagined or seen a swimming pool when it's pulled out or, or dug in preparation for a swimming pool and it feels quite big or when you see an apartment building going in, you know, and there's a huge pit in the ground. 
But then when you see these super pits, that it feels as though there's a suburb of worth of space mm. that has just been emptied out and sucked of its resources in the most violent way. She has such a way, Megan, of allowing you to think really expansively about the kind of philosophical, social, um, environmental layers of things, but without being too direct. No, it was so poetic. Like, it was... And also embodied. Like, it wasn't just... Like, it had a very clear political kind of intention and a clarity about her, you know... Uh, messaging, but I, but then it was an entirely embodied sensation. It was very effective, mm. um, I found, and and like that, yeah, that lying down and being with the work. Um, it was just such a pleasure. Mm. Mm. And also the because those, um, as you described, the I don't know if she would call them uh, instruments or objects in the space and the the way because they were actually like you know recovered or or found objects or you know they were used they were aged they were rusted and the choice of the really dark pebbly ground um, Mm. texture like it was also like a really on a purely aesthetic level a really interesting and complex image that you were looking at if you just encountered the still the installation as a as a yeah, as an image, I suppose, like or as documentation of an image or however, that those things, it was like, yeah, operating on many levels in a really sophisticated way. Yeah. Well, I think as well, because in Adelaide, when I've seen the documentation, because I didn't physically see it, there was quite a dark installation. It was quite theatricalised, what I found in the New South Wales, University of New South Wales galleries. It was kind of, it was brighter, like it was a lighter kind of space with lighter pebbles. So I felt like it was. Uh, oh, okay. It wasn't as theatricalized in that other oh, that's installation, mm. but still, it was very performative because when the players, the the musicians, sort of entered, they would walk across this pebbly ground, and kind of that itself started the composition, uh, just with their footprints on the on the earth or on the the pebbles. Mm. Beautiful. I think. As well, just coming back to my interests of, like, sound and listening and performance and embodiment was just something that I really was inspired by and aspire to to make work like that. Mm. Can you speak to your interest in sound-based practices or or how you... Mm. Yeah. I think largely, I mean, as you sort of mentioned, you know, we came from working with performance and, you know, in the early 2000s, <laughs> there was a real crossover between, you know, experimental theatre, contemporary performance, visual arts, kind of performance art, comedy, like there was a lot of us working across all of these forms together and that really stuck with me, this interest in performance. Uh, and then slowly I became sort of interested in how you know, the interrelationship between performance and and sonic practice, how sound could mark time. So in an early performance called The 12-Hour Revolution, there was this sort of... I used sound to demonstrate the accumulative effect of, of, you know, endurance performance over 12 hours. Uh, And then I sort of became... was sort of involved with Serial Space, which was an artist-run initiative in Chippendale that focused on experimental sound practice and performance. So it just sort of was this slow, cumulative effect of, yeah, being interested in sound. 
And then lately I'm interested in, I guess, performances that aren't directly, you know, requiring the body, but instead sound is kind of being presented as a performance work, as a sort of theatricalized space. Um, sound is the potential of sort of an expanded embodiment. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm interested in is, is sound as sort of carrying the weight and force of a body. As in no performing body that we see, but the, 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 the body of the audience yeah. Yeah, experience is still there. Yeah, or the, you know... Um, if there's vocalities in the sound work, you know, how, how does that carry the body in the space? Mm. And then, so could you speak about a work that you have made? Um, and we're really interested in, yeah, how you work from conception through to developing an idea and then perhaps where it has its outcome or how, how you fit it into the world as well. You know, maybe I'll talk about Miedis, which is quite a, yeah, it demonstrates sort of different... I guess, streams or arms or whatever of my practice. So Miedis will be showing at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in April. And it's a work that it'll be a sound installation that occupies the entire space for galleries of, of ACO. And so this was the outcome of a commission that I received, a fellowship that I received um, called Suspended Moment, the Cathy Cavalier Fellowship. And this was like an amazing opportunity to create sort of, you know, a, a large scale installation and also to have, yeah, Acker as the site to present this work. And so Miedis is uh, sort of thinking about like the meatus is a um, passage that leads into the body. So meatus is your ear canals or your nasal passages or your urethra. It's a sort of opening of the body that's constantly open. So you can't close your ear canal or, or um, it always remains open to the world. Uh, and so meatus isn't just one site. It doesn't just belong to the ear, but meatus is multiple sites across the body that has multiple different functions and sensations and uh, for me it's beca it became a sort of way of thinking about how listening can be a practice that's dispersed across the body that's just not centered in the ear but instead can you know listening can be a complete sensorial experience things that you know um, that encompasses sort of unconscious intensities or yeah different kind of modes of feeling and sensation so yeah Miedis I guess started with like this as a concept and an idea and I knew I wanted to create like a large-scale sound installation that was purely vocal like experimental vocalization that was just the starting point is like thinking about a large-scale installation with vocals and then thinking sort of speculating on like what meatus might mean as a listening practice and so yeah I often work in collaboration as well with people so I approached Brian Fawata and Hayley Ford to develop this like sound composition I had no idea what that would be and then when I learned that I had um Acker 
which wasn't just one gallery space to present the work in, but I had the entire four spaces of ACA. I also thought, well, you know, I have a curatorial arm of my practice and collaborative modes, so I thought, well, I might bring in other artists, Del Lamanta and Sione Timohenga and Nina Buchanan and Debris Facility, and also ask them to develop sound compositions in response to this idea of meatus and a sort of embodied listening experience. So, yeah, I guess how I work is often... I'm not an artist that necessarily has a studio practice, but I'll work in sort of intensive residency bursts. So Brian and I, we really worked in sort of different stages of to develop, like one stage was just to develop the vibe. Mm. The second stage was to develop the script. And then the third stage was when Haley came into the process. And then Brian and I started, well, Brian improvised in the space. And I sort of was more role of a dramaturg at that point and Haley would listen and modulate his voice as he was improvising. So in that those three stages the work was yeah developed between Brian and I where we were just like okay well what's the atmosphere of this work? What is this kind of what what do we want people to feel? Uh, then the second was like okay well how you know we both sort of enjoy writing and then sort of started performing and improvising around the writing and then the third when we went into that space the third time we had sort of these separate chunks we knew we had these bits of script that needed to be improvised so for example mouth come wormhole was one bit of script you fuck my whole passage was another bit of script and so we would centre improvisations around each of those lines of script. And Haley, who was sort of newer to the process at that stage, would be listening and then kind of, um, yeah, um, augmenting and feeding back and creating a feedback loop with Brian's performance. So that's how we developed that collaborative work. And we kind of likened the collaborative process to being a worm. So this idea of um, the worm ingesting material and then shitting it out and then becoming this composted mess. We kind of saw each other as these worms. At some points, one person would feed the material to the worm and then the worm would sort of, con- you know, um, consume it and then cast it. And um, so we kind of had this kind of thinking about our collaborative processes being worms together. Uh, and then again, like separate to that particular composition, Del, Sione, Nina, and I did a residency at Art Space to kind of for a week to develop their compositions, and um, they worked more independently. But we would come together to kind of talk about what Miatus is, what kind of environment we want to create with the installation of Acker, um, and just to talk about like ideas around listening and sound. So. Yeah, the, the process, I guess, for creating Neatus as a whole was very much about intensive collaborative working, you know, periods, as well as evolving a project in conversation with people. So even though I sort of came to this, you know, I had ACA, I had a particular framework, you know, in which we were working within, I feel like the idea of Miatus really evolved in conversation with Brian and Haley and Nina and Del and Sione. 
fascinating because every artist, I mean, this is, you know, a huge opportunity and an opportunity to work for a long time from a fellowship and at scale. Mm. And that is a kind of very rare thing in Australia. And I can imagine would be, well, certainly, yeah, I think any artist, whenever you get these big opportunities, it's wonderful and also really difficult because you are trying to work in a way that you haven't quite worked before and it's very visible and so there's a lot of pressures internal and external around how to work with your practice and what you know how to do but in a slightly new or yeah bigger way even if it's not a big spectacular work about or if it perhaps is you know but like thinking through those ideas of how to approach scale and certainly this notion of bringing in a kind of curatorial arm is really interesting but I, I wonder if you could speak to the kind of like how does that um, how do you see the relationship between the curatorial work and your artist practice or are they the same thing or is this the first time you've placed them in the same context at the same time? Yeah, yes. Like I have normally kept sort of my curatorial practice very distinct from my artistic kind of output. But this project, I also kind of started to blur them a lot more. Um, same, and I sort of liken my role between artist and dramaturg and curator. And this project as well, it sort of is aligned with a lot of my PhD research. And so part of that was sort of thinking, okay, well, what, what, who am I? Like, what is my role? Am I an artist? Or I don't know. Uh, and so I sort of developed this concept of the artist come curator. And so the, you know, it's sort of the come being, you know, this figure between this kind of slippage, um, come being kind of this binding material, this kind of, I don't know. Sticky. Sticky, yeah, this kind of dirty, messy material that kind of binds the, the artist and the curator. So the artist come curator is sort of, I guess, someone who as well collapses the distinctions between those roles but also in that what what problems can arise so you know within working within institutions and working within certain kind of contexts there's very delineated roles so if the artist come curator kind of comes into these kind of spaces then what potential agitations or possibilities are kind of opened up you know for me working with this fellowship which was, you know, you know, a, a fellowship that was awarded to, to three people and me being one of them, like to open a fellowship out to become kind of a collaborative or sort of group collective space. Like what, what does that do? Yeah, and I feel like for me working in performance as well is always a very collaborative process. As, like as you would know, I think with performance it's very hard to do in isolation like you need the skills you need the you know experience of other people to kind of realize projects so that I think for me being the artist come curator or you know speaks to I guess very much like lots of different sort of modes in which I draw from and my interest in um yeah collaboration as being kind of almost a medium to 
Yeah, or a strategy, you know. Yeah. I think that that thing of, like, making it difficult for the walls of the institution to hold is a, is a really, like, useful strategy, you know, because it really it's certainly something that I've experienced with, like, post being a collaboration mm. for many years, working in theatres where if you're bringing in a different framework... You have to, like, keep bringing it in in every encounter you have with the institution. So they've already programmed you, great, but then you have a meeting, it has to be when everyone's available. <laughs> yeah. Or you have a meeting, it has to be when everyone's available, but then they ask you a question and there are three of you and you have to agree on the answer. So the, do you have that conversation there live in front of them or do you say, okay, great, thank you for the question, we have to go have another meeting about this meeting and then we can tell you what like what the answer is you know and so that that is just like the tiniest little hiccup in the in the motion or or, or a little spanner in the works of that engine <laughs> that is like changing the labor that you do but like because you're there with them but also changing the way that like it's like a little yeah it's difficult though it's um it's funny that, yeah, it's simple and difficult at the same time when it makes sense for your practice. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, a lot of my work is interested in relational dynamics and so when it's, um, like, that's a lot of the pleasure of my work is, like, working with others uh, and a way in which I sort of push or extend my thinking and my practice. And I think, you know, with this project, working with Felix Abrahams, who's pushed my work and my thinking into using these new programs, um, this, like, 3D audio rendering system, like, I would never have, you know, thought, <laughs> you know, the possibilities of this, but working with him and then he's able to kind of, and it's the first time Acker is working in such a way as well, and so it's really, and I guess Acker just work. I mean, Acker has a long history of experimental Installation, so they're very accustomed to it. But to work with sound in this kind of way, I think, is is new for them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I feel like it collaboration a lot of the time is a much slower process and a much more of like a yeah conversation after conversation to make sure that everyone's communicated with and understands where we're all headed. But I feel like it's um, yeah really rewarding in the end. And how will we experience those, yeah, like, auditory, like, how, yeah, what will happen when I come into the gallery? So you walk into ACCA, the entire installation is going to be simply just red lighting with speakers. So throughout the whole space is quite uniform. And there'll be sort of a red carpet on the ground with just the, the walls as they are, but I guess with the red lighting they'll refract the the red, hopefully. Um, And then in the sort of gallery one, which is the large 30-metre space, that will be Brian, Haley, and my composition. So this is this vocal sort of worm-like installation, sorry, worm-like sort of sound piece, Uh, and that's where we've used the 3D audio rendering system, could Iosono. And that program rather than how I understand it, it sort of treats sound as an object. So the sound is, it's quite cinematic. It's been used in cinema sort of more than in in art gallery contexts. So that'll be gallery one. Then gallery four, three and two is where Del 
Nina and Sione's works are, and they're going to be playing in kind of consecutive um, one in a sequence, one after the other. So it means that when Dell's work is up, like you're always going to be having sound bleed and this idea of bleeding and leaking of sounds for me, sort of uh, curatorially and, and dramaturgically, I was thinking about you know, collective, collaborative modes of making and this kind of bleeding between ideas kind of being replicated of, of bleeding with the sounds. So you'll have Dell's piece, Owl and Owl, sort of worm piece in Gallery 1, then Sione's and then Nina's. So there's this kind of almost like a theatricality to the placement of the sounds and, and how they kind of unfurl. And then in the foyer is where Debris Facility will be having sort of alarm-like incursions. Yeah. So. Alarm-like incursions in... I mean, the ACCA foyer is a very echoey space. <laughs> yes. Certainly my experience of going to ACCA... I, I think I went there last December was the last time and it was an opening and it can be very intense. Like, the audio experience in that room, just from humans and um, clinking glasses, is very bouncy and and it really it's a very embodied experience I can imagine an alarm (laughs) is going to be quite abrasive yeah so I think and also this idea of different sort of temporal I guess you know where Brian Haley and my work is kind of working on this ongoing loop with Del, Siona and Nina's but then Debris I guess is going to be this kind of counter to that loop it's going to be um, temporally kind of yeah operating in a different register but yeah I think ACCA has been quite a a challenge in terms of thinking of sound because like it's already made is that correct it's been yeah it was supposed to open two years ago wow that's really heartbreaking and it's been sitting and waiting uh, and luckily ACCA was able to reprogram it quite a few times um so COVID really did shift and change the, yeah, the, like you were sort of talking about scale. <laughs> I feel like this project has sort of had this epic duration and many different lives. So I'll be happy to kind of finally... Birth it, put birth it, it into out. the world. Mm. Oh, it's time. I feel like so many people and artists especially are just like, yeah, have these... Uh, Overly pregnant bodies. <laughs> you know, when you put a work out there for the first time and you can assess what was right, what maybe could have been tightened. Yeah. I've been doing that for two years and so I can see the flaws in some of my thinking or other things that I maybe would have chosen to do differently. Yeah, so just going into presenting a work with having two years to have moulded over. But not like not in communication with any kind of community or, or like, you know, normally you're forced by a deadline to put it into the world. Wherever you get to is where you get to. Exactly. But this has sort of been this deferred deadline. And also because the work isn't completely realised, like it's still in that hypothetical kind of space. Yeah, so it's just been, I think, it's just a weird position to be put in where you've developed this work to a set deadline that was two years ago and now it's just it's been in a stasis if we're lucky the whole world has been treading water and thinking about all of our decisions critically for like two and a half years and it's a very exhausting uh 
state. Too much reflection. Too much reflection time. It's not good for anyone. We need action. We even need failure or success occasionally. Yeah, and I just want to see whether this baby floats or sinks. Mm. And can you speak to, I suppose the final question was going to be, how do you place that body of work or that major work in your larger practice or practice since even if there has been? I think, um, yeah, for me it it has been this real turning point in my practice and thinking about yeah, my, myself as an artist and how I work with others, uh, it's really consolidated a focus on, at the moment, the voice and thinking about listening and, and the relationship to the voice uh, and thinking about expanded forms of performance. Mm. And I guess my role as, yeah, not this kind of singular artist but someone that moves across sort of this, I don't know, dramaturgical, curatorial, artist, performer, you know, kind of role. Mm. Yeah, but sort of making that explicit rather than responsive or something, you know. Mm. Mm. Great. Thank you. Finally, we ask artists to talk about a work that they didn't see or experience but have heard about or read about and would have loved to experience. So could you speak to that provocation? Yes. I really wanted to be there for Anne Imhoff's recent work at the Palais de Tokyo, um, Natura Mort, I think, is the name. And it's part of the um, carte blanche program. So this is where sort of an artist is given over the Palais de Tokyo. Um, And her performance... Um, which involved about 30 different sort of collaborators and artists. She occupied the entire Palais de Tokyo and created this kind of installation that audiences roam through and move through. I think there were peaks of performances, so there'd be sort of these young, beautiful people (laughs) moving through the space. There would be like heavy metal, intense music, there'd be sort of smoke and, yeah, she just creates these kind of experiences where, yeah, bodies are moving, there's these kind of performance that's unfolding throughout the entire kind of institution. Something similar was, yeah, I guess at the Venice Biennial, I think it was 2017, she did a performance called Faust and that's where she occupied the whole of the the German pavilion and with this kind of like glass almost labyrinth that people would walk through and there'd be yeah sort of these languishing young bodies vaping and music playing and I just feel like I would love to experience one of her works Mm. again it's this kind of encompassing experiential durational performance work yeah. Yeah, she also gathers a large group of collaborators, doesn't she? There always seems to be, whenever I've seen images of her work, there is this kind of just troop of people and often, I mean, I, th- I don't think she's that young. She's, I think... I think she's born in the late 70s, so she's not that old. Depends who you're asking, doesn't it? 
<laughs> but yeah, and her partner is also an artist. I think Eliza Douglas, Eliza and, yeah, Douglas. seems to be a big muse. Mm. Well, we could all use one of those. We could. But yeah, that idea of it felt. I remember when um, when she won the the award at the Venice Biennale, and it really felt like a moment in. Um, in, like it felt like first of all her aesthetic felt incredibly contemporary in that kind of sports goth Bergheim people who are weird and yet striking and beautiful many of them young and extremely physically uh, <laughs> you know skilled in strange dance or skilled in holding space as a performer in some way and so incredibly fun to see in a big biennale context but also that it really felt like a moment in the kind of trajectory of performance. I think specifically for me, I'm often think like when I go to uh, institutions, I'm interested in performance and how it's absorbed or it felt like a visual arts institution, the institution of the Biennale and the German pavilion within the Biennale was holding performance that worked both on the level of it being absorbed into like a series of images and documents that can be really produced in a way that works within a kind of uh, institutional frame, but also that worked within a choreographic logic that held up in as a performance. And that has been attempted a lot, but rarely is successful. True. And not just, I guess, the visual and then choreographic, but I also think in terms of you know, music and, and the way that, you know, we, if you go to Berghain or you go to sort of certain clubs or, you know, gigs or whatever it is, you are kind of moving through these spaces and she kind of created this, like, I think she mimics that kind of mode of consuming. Yeah, it feels like she kind of remixes them, though, or collages different experiences as opposed to just representing, you know, like representing the nightclub within the the gallery space mm-hmm. because it doesn't feel like a nightclub. It, feel, it has its own very particular atmosphere that she creates or different, different atmospheres at different times, but it doesn't replicate. It just sort of borrows little elements and twists and turns them to create a really different affect and a really different... Yeah, um, like vibe, I guess, to go back to the word from before. But also that your body is also really... Like, she creates a lot of... It's like the space is a really important element in her work. Like, you really either... Like, that those famous images in, in Venice of, like, people underneath you and you're on glass and you're peering down at them and it's really thinking about how we look at those biennales and how we look at performance in the gallery and how we make people into objects, you know, like I'm just thinking about one time when I saw Brooke Stamp performing as she often does in Adam Linda's work and I didn't know that she was going to be there and she often performs and his work as uh, I remember is a lot about the labour that goes into uh, performance and the labour that is goes into art making and that the way that often art making presumes that labor is invisible and performance presumes that labor is visible and so there's an immediate like tension there in from beginning middle and all the way to the uh, presentation of work uh, that's kind of a generalization but yeah I remember and I saw Brooke in the gallery and 
it was so strange because it was at the NGV, which is a very big gallery in Melbourne, and, and she was dancing and, and be- beautiful as always, um, but she was kind of just being treated like almost like a busker in the street. People were taking photos of her. Like it wouldn't, it was really like people were sort of getting really into her personal space. And I saw her and she said, oh, hi. And I said, how long are you doing this for? She said, oh, eight hours, you know. So she was sort of chatting to me while she was dancing. It was just a very strange moment to see how, um, yeah, she was really, I don't know, both alive and holding on to herself, but also completely disem- de- dehumanised in that space mm. by the context in that moment. And, yeah, I think that there's something about... And Imhoff's work that try that pulls against that, and that makes these people that holds onto the subjectivity of her performers, and also makes the act of looking at them really part of like you have to think about the fact that you're looking, and you have to think about that your implication in that looking, and also your fetishizing of these people in their attractiveness or their strangeness, and how seductive that is in all contexts both the nightclub and the gallery you know and I think that seduction like you know not being able to experience that work but it conveys so readily you know the experience via you know social media or different kind of platforms and stuff like I think uh, it still lures you from afar, you yes. know, this kind of sound, the, the epicness of it all. Yes, and um, as you're saying that, I just remembered that when I when it was happening that she said about the Venice Biennale, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but she was saying, I remember she said this really interesting thing, which I remembered, obviously, which was about how she was really surprised by the images on social media of the work, like just how many there were and also just what the work was through people's eyes and how they saw it and that she was thinking of those images as the archive of that work, which is like a very interesting way to think about it, I think. Yeah, and I think that she's capitalised that on, since the Venice Biennale on this Palais de Tokyo mm-hmm. kind of work, I think that she's imbricate, imbricated that into into the sort of archive and the retelling and the kind of dissemination of the work. Interesting. Mm. I mean, I just would love, uh, well, there's <laughs> love to all, see it. Yeah, I'm sorry that you can't see that work. <laughs> all right, well, I think... We seem to have come to a neat ending. So thank you you so much, Fran, for sharing your thoughts and your work. Um, We're really indebted to the artistic community and interested in how work can be alive in conversation. So thank you very much. Thanks, Mish. Aphids, listen. Listen.